listening to the Arise Church podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. We find ourselves today in Acts chapter 2, and it should be interpreted just like the rest of the book, or just like any other book that you've ever read, by its thesis. When we look at Acts chapter 2, we should be interpreting it through the lens of Acts 1 and verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus gave the disciples a promise. That promise is that they would be witnesses to the ends of the earth after they had received power from on high. Jesus knew and he wanted his disciples know and wants us to know. That his mission is totally dependent on the spirit of God and we can do nothing without him. Just as the ministry of Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit when it descended on him, even at his baptism. So now the ministry of the disciples of Jesus would depend on them receiving the Holy Spirit and relying on his power. It wasn't about them. In our recent sermon, we said the book of Acts is not about this group of people who are so good that now God is able to work in the world. No, it's about transformation that happens because God takes hold of people. And that's what he calls us to. He calls us to that kind of dependence. We're going to walk through this first uh, set in Acts chapter 2 and really work our way down almost to about three quarters away through the chapter. But let me read for us Acts 2, verse 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of this multitude came together and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear them, each of us, in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes and Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. The first thing I want us to consider when we come to looking at the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost is the prayers that led to Pentecost. If Acts chapter 2 should be understood and interpreted in, like, in light of Acts 1 and 8, it should be remembered in the context of Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. 
If you glance back there, you'll see that it says all these, speaking of the men and the women, the 120 who were gathered together in the upper room with one accord were together doing what? Devoting themselves to prayer. Pentecost came after they had obeyed the Lord and went back to Jerusalem and waited on him and prayed. Some things only happen when you pray. And dare I say, nothing will happen when you don't pray. H.B. Charles wrote a book. It's called It Happens After Prayer. And he says the things you pray about are the things that you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about, those are the things you think you can handle on your own. Let's never forget that it was a prayer meeting that preceded Pentecost. It was a time of being devoted together, men and women, young and old, to prayer and seeking and depending on God to make a move. This moment in Acts chapter 2 signals the dawning of the age of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of the Spirit in God's people to empower them for his mission of witnessing to the ends of the earth, to all nations. The meaning behind all of this is God empowering his church with his spirit for his glory among the nations. You and I can't do that by ourselves. You cannot do that alone. You cannot reach the world alone. The point of Pentecost and the time of the Spirit coming to them and the goal of it all was mission. God has an unstoppable mission that carried them from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth and it would not have happened was it not for their devotion to prayer and dependence on him and his Holy Spirit. The goal of mission is this. Psalm chapter 22 Verse 27 says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and return to the Lord and all the families of all the nations shall worship before him. This had been prophesied well before 2022. If we properly understood what happened here, our hearts would be passionately committed to the act of prayer and the mission of God and the cause of Christ in the world. God's purpose at Pentecost was to equip his church so that it would be witnesses to all nations, which results in his eternal glory as people from all the families of the earth praise him and worship him. That's not something that you and I can do in our own strength, is it? We need power, which leads me to talking about the next area of focus, the power that came at Pentecost, the prayers that led to Pentecost and now the power that was at Pentecost. To understand this event, we actually have to understand the Jewish Feast of Weeks. There's been a lot of confusion surrounding Acts chapter 2 without the Bible study that ought to precede it. The Jewish Feast of Weeks was happening at that time. It was no coincidence that Pentecost came and God poured out his spirit on the disciples on this day. You see, there were three great Jewish feasts from all the way back to the beginning of time that was Passover that came in the spring which celebrated Israel's deliverance from Egypt. We all know about Passover, don't we? It was followed immediately by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then Pentecost was a feast. It was called the Feast of Weeks. The word Pentecost rooted in the Greek or the original language is actually coming out to this idea of 50th. You might be able to catch the similarity in a word like our English word pentagon, which is a five-sided shape. This idea of Pentecost and this 
holiday and this feast actually occurred exactly seven weeks following the Passover. It was exactly 50 days later. Have you been tracking with us in the book of Acts that there were 50 days that they were devoted to prayer? And that that was from the time of what? The resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you recognized that the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who would take over the sins of the world, had been slain and God had once and for all dealt with our sin problem in Jesus Christ. And now there was a celebration which there had always been of the Feast of Weeks. Pentecost was this initial harvest feast where the Jews were to offer to the Lord their first fruits of their new grain. There was a wheat harvest and then there was a barley harvest. And among other rituals, Leviticus chapter 23, you can study it at another time, says that they were to wave before the, lo uh, the Lord two loaves that they baked from their harvest. And this time they were supposed to place leaven in them. Now, what do we know about leaven in the Bible? Leaven is actually symbolic of sin and impurity. And the Jews had a diet of primarily unleavened bread, but not, not for Pentecost. There was to be wave loaves that they waved before the Lord and that had leaven in them. Now, when you go back and you read Acts chapter 2, did you notice all those people that were listed in verse 9 and verse 10 and verse 11? The key to understanding that list of people actually comes in verse number 5. There were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. <laughs> they were devout Jews, meaning they were God-fearing people, and some of them were proselytes. This is obvious, their devotion, because they were actually there to celebrate the feast of Pentecost. They were in Jerusalem at that time, not by happenstance and not by chance. Our God is a great God. He's very, very wise, and he does all things well. Let me, let, me, let me just paint the picture for you. All these individuals have made a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem at that time to celebrate this event. Josephus was a first century historian who wrote, just like your favorite newscaster writes, or maybe the bloggers that you listen to, they're just reporting on what happened. You know what Josephus, Josephus wrote about? He said that at this time, it was an overcrowded city. See, Jerusalem was typically about 150,000 people strong, not too much larger than the city of Ventura. The population was 150,000. But during this time, every time the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost came about, he said there was more than a million people who had flooded the city and came from all the surrounding nations. 150,000 is the population. Now you got people camped out all up the hillsides and everywhere overpopulating the city. And they've all come back for this reason. Let's draw back a little. What is the significance of this? Well, all of this came to a head and all of it was fulfilled with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Until this time, you know what the thought was? God's people consisted of ethnic Israel. And that's it. Ain't no hope for nobody else. Anyone who was not part of ethnic Israel would not have been a part of God's family. But now you have people who have become proselytes in other regions. You know what a proselyte is? It's somebody who's not ethnically Israel, who converts by culture and tradition and religion to assimilate into 
Judaism. Luke here said that there were even proselytes who had come. And they were a part of this first movement and this religious practice and these cultural traditions because the only way to get close to God and salvation in him was to assimilate. You had to come and assimilate into what was happening. I hope you guys are following me. The understanding was that it was through that nation and that nation alone that God worked through his covenant promises to form a people for himself. But now at Pentecost, by no, no coincidence, the Lord was beginning to unveil his plan as he formed the body of Christ, the church made up of Jews and Gentiles, and he placed them on equal footing. Paul later calls this a mystery, meaning that it had not been formally revealed. You know why it was mysterious? Because it was actually typified in the two loaves. Those two loaves that were waved before the Lord at the Feast of Pentecost with leaven in them. Both of them have equal footing on equal ground. Things have been become level now. The Hebrew prophet Joel actually proclaimed that in the latter days, God was going to pour out his spirit. You heard it from Joel chapter 2, as Jamie read today, on all flesh, on all humanity, so that your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. That this would be a global movement that reaches over all cultural barriers, every race, every class, all genders, was a point that was made emphatic by the prophet Joel when he said, even on servants. How many servants do you think that the, the Jews had who were of their own kind? And how many servants do you think the Jews had who might have been Gentiles and sojourners and outsiders and people they looked down on? He said, even on servants, both men and women, I will richly pour out my spirit in those days. There's something very significant, and I think it's, yeah, it's easily missed in this when you have it, maybe have the time to study. The Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost in Le uh, Leviticus 23 and verse 22 says this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the immigrant and for the sojourner, and for the refugee. He said, don't take it all for yourself. Leave it for those who you consider to be outsiders. God, even from the giving of the law, built provision and inclusion in the Feast of Weeks, which was Pentecost, for those people who Israel had considered to be outsiders. It's no small thing that the foreshadowings of the loaves and the foreshadowings and the foretellings that came from Joel would be uh, in all of their multicultural implications and all of the inclusive implications that they would be the context and the key text for the Apostle Peter's sermon at Pentecost. When people of some 16 or so language groups first heard the gospel preached in their own native tongues. Have you ever considered that the coming of the spirit of Pentecost didn't even involve primarily a miracle of hearing where each person was made to understand and assimilate to one language? On the contrary, it was a miracle of speaking whereas the apostles did what? The leading women who were with them did what? It's right there for us in Acts chapter 2. Come on. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You got 120 disciples 
preaching in multiple languages to these gathered crowds. That's no small thing, friends. This would be a good time to make mention of the mystery of the gift of tongues. The biblical gift of tongues this comes from this Greek word for tongues, which means this, this abnormal, supernatural ability to speak fluently a language that you ain't never learned. God still gives people that gift. We have people in our church. We have leaders in our church who God has gifted in this way. And what's clear from right here in our text is this. This is not an innate natural ability. It's not something you can do on your own. It cannot be learned and it will not be taught. God gives the gifts. God does it on his own and he does it in a miraculous way. This group miraculously spoke in other actual languages that they could not speak before. And that as you look at those 16 groups on your list, this is what you need to understand. Africans and Arabs and Iranians and Italians and Palestinians and Romans and Saudi Arabians and Syrians and Turks that day all heard the good news of Jesus Christ in their own language. That's power. That's the power to break open the unstoppable kingdom through the witnessing to the ends of the earth. That's the power that you and I need. We've got to be careful when we think of and when we look for even the power of the spirit and the gifts to make sure that we understand their biblical placement, even for the church. You have people from various cultures and classes and conditions that come to faith in Jesus Christ this day. He reconciles them to God, the Father, and to each other by integrating them into one assembly. Not assimilating them into one accent. He integrates them into one assembly. That's what church means. That word ecclesia is the assembly. It's the called out ones. He pulls together people from all of these nations, all of these languages into one assembly. He does not call them to assimilate into one accent. You got to become a Jew. You got to get circumcised. You can't wear that. You can't eat that. That's not what God did when Pentecost broke out. When the Holy Spirit breaks into the world, what we see is that the church is born and it is to the ends of the earth, y'all. Amen, somebody. This is the power of Pentecost. The prayers that led to Pentecost led to the power. And this is what the power is. You may, not, you may or may not have recalled Genesis chapter 11. God scattered people with the tower and they called the tower Babel. And he did so by confusing their tongues. Do you remember that? It's no small thing that here in Acts chapter 2, God again supplies a diversity of languages, but not to divide humanity, this time to unite us. He brings together a church of people from many nations and it foreshadows the rest of his unstoppable mission to reach all people. It, un it unfolds real quick here in Acts. It happens right away, and we're going to see it keeps happening with greater clarity as you walk through. All of a sudden, the Spirit of God, through the coming of His Spirit, was bridging the gaps. Gaps of culture, class, slaves, servant, free, rich, poor, men and women, Jew and Gentile. He created a renewed humanity. Now, what about their proclamation? I said a bit ago that the meeting preceded, the prayer meeting preceded the power. But let's never forget that the power actually led to proclamation. Did you notice what did it say there in verse number 11? And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? 
That's verse 12, actually. Verse 11 says, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, said we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They were praising God for his great salvation. They had just spent 40 days with the risen Lord Jesus. They had just seen him in flesh ascend into heaven. You believe that? They saw Jesus, their friend who had been murdered, walking around town, eating with them like he was back kicking it. They were fishing. And they saw him with their own eyes ascending to heaven. And now the Holy Spirit had flooded their hearts. This is a great outbreak of praise and adoration and worship that is uncontrollable. And what are they saying? They're proclaiming the great and mighty works of God. Not only did the people proclaim his mighty works, but Peter, you remember anything about Peter? Peter, cowardly Peter, Peter who like shrank back, Peter who wouldn't open up and be honest about his discipleship to Christ, Peter who was afraid that somebody might find out that he was actually following, Peter who cursed the little girl when she said, I saw you with that man. He said, go to hell. I don't know Jesus. Peter, that Peter, now empowered by the Holy Spirit, is emboldened and he stands up and he says, listen up, all of y'all, visitors, I know we got people who don't live here. And all of you who live in Jerusalem, all of you, listen to me. The power of Pentecost will come and embolden you to open up your mouth and to proclaim the gospel, to preach the good news. Peter's sermon deserves its own sermon series, but for the sake of time, let's see if we can just draw a few things out of it. The first thing his sermon includes when you look at verses 14 to 41. This is Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2. The first thing that I saw was that he had this staggering supernatural ability to understand and to interpret scripture. He said they're not drunk. See, you guys think that they are intoxicated with new wine, that sweet wine, the stuff that gets you drunk fast. He said, no, the new wine has actually come. This is what Joel chapter 2 was about. And he goes back and he interprets to them the prophecy that they had known from before. One of the amazing things that I saw in his interpretation is that he also said, David says concerning him in verse number 25, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, which means the grave. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. You look at what Peter said in verse number 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, Peter is dead and in the grave. He looked back to Psalm chapter 16 and saw the psalmist's writing and was able to interpret for them that this was speaking of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter was able to preach and to understand what the scriptures had been saying forever. He said, y'all know like I know, David is dead, but Jesus is alive. This was about the Messiah. What an amazing thing, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I remember when this happened to me. I promise you, I kid you not. I could not find John 3:16 in the Bible, but all of a sudden I could understand it. And God was bringing about this teaching gift in the midst of our house church in Chino Hills almost 20 years ago. And all of a sudden it was like I was able to teach the word, understand the word, but I didn't even know where Bible verses were by heart. When the Holy Spirit empowered me, all of a sudden he gave me understanding. He started to teach me in ways that I never had prior before. 
The second thing Peter's sermon is rich with is a supernatural understanding of theology. Look at verse 23. He says some things that are bewildering. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Have you ever wrestled with the likes of Isaiah chapter 53? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us all peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. What good news is that when it talks about the suffering servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? But listen to what else Isaiah had prophesied 700 years before. He says in Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, speaking of Yahweh, has put him to grief. The Holy Spirit gave the apostles a supernatural ability and a supernatural power to see into things that are too deep for the, for the mind's eye. I think of the supernatural insight of that other apostle, John, who wrote in Revelation 13 that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. And all who are in him, their names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Let that one bake your noodle. I'm not here to give you a theological persuasion. I'm telling you what the Bible says. And I'm telling you that Peter was able to stand up and say, this God did. He was delivered up according to the foreknowledge of God. God predetermined that this would be the way that he would reach the world. And thirdly, Peter's sermon is supernaturally bold preaching. The rest of verse 23 says, you crucified him. And you killed him. This ain't politically correct, nor is it seeker sensitive. He said he was killed by hands of lawless men. And he said in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, whom you killed, whom you crucified. Peter turns to a mixed crowd of people, thousands of people. And he preaches in a way that the Peter that we know from the Gospels would have never done if the Holy Spirit had not overtaken him. And though he preaches a politically incorrect sermon, and though he preaches with power and said, y'all did that, though it was not seeker sensitive, we had 3,000 souls and the first Pentecostal Baptist Church of Jerusalem was born that day. Was it not? That was the first Pentecostal church. And they said, what should we do? And he said, repent and be baptized. First Pentecostal Baptist Church. I like that name. <laughs> Y'all can see that I'm not really, I don't like to draw lines. <laughs> I let God do what he does and only he does. Here's a clo few closing bits of application. We think about it. We got the prayer that led to Pentecost. We got the power that came there. And then we saw the preaching, the proclamation of Pentecost. Here's some little bit of application. Most of this surrounds prayer. Since we can't manufacture what only the spirit of God can do, let me urge us toward prayer. Prayer that Lord willing will manifest itself in power in your life and in my life. This ain't six things to do. This is just apply this to your life and heart and, and, and invite God to, to work with you. First thing that I was challenged by this week is remem remembering that we will have the spirit of God fall on us in power. Only when we fall on our knees and pray. We will have the spirit fall on us in power when we fall on our knees in prayer. You've heard me say many times that prayerlessness is our declaration from, uh, from, uh, of independence from God. There's a lot that you can do to fix the world around you, to reach your, uh, your, your, your neighbors and your family and your friends, to change the world. There's a lot you can do after you pray, but there's nothing you can do that will fix it until you pray. Do you know that you need God's power in your life? Do you know that you need God's power in your life? 
Those men and women in that upper room knew without a shadow of a doubt that if the gospel was going to get from Galilee to Goleta, it had to be God. It had to be God. They needed a breakthrough. Is that your story? Where do you need the spirit of God to invade your life and to overtake you? Where do you need his power and his presence to be manifesting your life today? We need to be careful also just to remember that our hearts are prone to desire the gifts. We, we, we would love to. I remember I used to go, I went to, I called people radio, went to other pastors, other churches. I, I ran all over the place looking for God to give me miraculous sign gifts. Somebody lay their hands on me. Somebody pray for me. And several times people did. But one of the things that I know is that I was looking for an experience. I wasn't, I was looking for the gift. I wasn't looking for the giver. And that season of my life, this is my story. God wants us to look for him and to bring glory to him. Another thing I was challenged by this week is that God didn't give you and I power just so that we can get in our closet and pray. He gave us power so we can get out on the corner and preach. Amen, somebody, right? And if you can't say amen, Jamie said you can say ouch. <laughs> the Lord may give you power to pray. I hope the Lord has given some of y'all power to pray. We desperately need that. And if he does, Paul would say that that's for your benefit and that's for the building up of the church and the building up of you. He says that it would be powerful in your time of worship with him. And then if you brought it into time of corporate worship, then he'll bring somebody beside you who can interpret that language that you ain't never learned. But listen to what else Paul says from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You may offer a beautiful prayer of thanksgiving. I want you all to speak in other tongues, but even more, I want you to prophesy. So my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire. Did you hear that? Earnestly desire. Earnestly desire to prophesy. Prophesying gets confused with foretelling. It can be that, and sometimes it includes that, but overall, prophecy is the ability to look backwards more than forwards, like Peter did. This is what Joel talked about. This is Leviticus. This is coming out of the Psalms. Does that make sense? Prophecy is the ability to say, thus says the Lord, to look at the scriptures and to be able to open your mouth and proclaim the mighty works of God. Peter said, uh, Paul says, earnestly desire that more even than to be able to speak in a language you did not learn. The third thing I was challenged with is that when the spirit of God uses you, he will open your mouth to praise him and to preach to others with boldness like we saw with Peter. Oftentimes, though, you might sound crazy just like they did. There was people there that say, y'all drunk. <laughs> there are people there who wouldn't have nothing to do with that. There are people there that undoubtedly saw Peter standing up before them and said, listen to me. And they said, who are you? We're talking about a teenage fisherman. We're not talking about some rabbi with a seminary degree. What are you talking about? Listen to you. But when the spirit takes over you, he will embolden you to open your mouth and preach. And you might sound crazy. I'm just telling you that. When the spirit takes control, you won't care what others think, though. You won't mind praying in public no more. All of a sudden, it doesn't matter if you can hold a note while singing. If God calls you to preach the gospel, it could be against your company and policy, and it could be considered to be hate speech. But when the Lord fills your heart, you cannot keep your mouth closed. I know that to be true. And we need that. We need more of that. Are you silent today? Is God's glory neither here nor there to you? Has your fire grown dim? Maybe at a time you had an experience with God, but now you just kind of been trekking through life, going it through the motions. Are you here this morning and you've never had an insatiable desire 
and passion for the glory of God. Does worship kind of feel boring to you when there's no lights and smoke and we're outside and it ain't loud? You need the power of Pentecost. You and I need the power of Pentecost. And it happens after 